Welcome to the Plymouth Plantation Podcast. I'm your host, Hilary Goodnow. Our guest today is Christopher Messier, Master of Arms for the 17th century English village. We'll be talking about the role of military exercises and sport in English celebrations and how that culture of celebration was transferred to life in New England. One of the first large-scale civil celebrations in Plymouth was the Harvest Feast of 1621, now known as the First Thanksgiving. Edward Winslow recounted the day's entertainments in a letter dated December 11, 1621. The governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. So I want to start our conversation with that passage from Winslow's letter, which I just read for our listeners, describing some of the ways the pilgrims celebrated the 1621 Harvest Feast. Um, They went fowling, which is bird hunting. They exercised their arms. And this really seems to go against our traditional imagery of pilgrims and Puritans as dour, serious people who hate fun. They're they're not fun-hating people. Uh, They have rules about it. And so it fairly certainly didn't occur on a Sunday. Uh, Sabbath rules were strict among these uh, early separatists and Puritans. But they did come from a rich tradition in England of uh, celebration. Um, And among the celebrations that the English liked in the time period were martial celebrations, this sort of marching around with guns and drums and in their armor and in their best clothing. Is there a correlation between the rise of these military activities as civil displays and this new English identity? I think, I think so. Um, the English seem to uh, gain uh, national cohesion a little sooner than other European countries in the time period. And um, it may have something to do with the fact that they're an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do uh, have a tendency to identify themselves as Englishmen, where frequently a Frenchman might say, I'm a Rocheler or I'm a Parisian. But there's a long tradition uh, in Europe in general of this sort of martial parading around and practicing with weapons as having kind of a dual purpose. You do get to train your militiamen and people get to watch them do it. And people seem to like watching soldiers marching around. If you consider uh, the isolated nature of the plantation and the fact that they're really cut off from markets and all the other sorts of usual entertainments that they might have, uh, this martial exercising might actually be more important. Can you talk a little bit about the armor that we see in Plymouth? Visitors comment on it all the time um, and they ask us why they would have brought armor to the New World. There's there there, there seems to be some learning uh, that occurs even though the the Plymouth uh, planters that we call pilgrims that come over on the Mayflower in 1620 are not a very experienced group of people. There's only one of them that's been to Jamestown before that we're sure about and not a lot of them are chosen for the trades that would be appropriate for the New World. Uh, at the same time, they seem to have been guys that did their homework. And uh, in William Brewster's inventory, is a, when he dies, is a 1619 copy of John Smith's Discovery of New England. And they do seem to be following John Smith's advice. At least he whines about it later on when he writes. Uh, he writes that they had my books and maps better cheap than me. Uh, in one of his subsequent writings. But he does uh, seem to admire their success and uh, takes a small bit of credit for it, uh, though he does not seem, I think he calls them Brownists, and obviously doesn't seem to approve of their religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but um, some of the first English attempts at colonization uh, at Jamestown, uh, men were not well armed or armored when they went ashore, and they encountered natives that were not interested in being friends. Uh, there was conflict right from the start in Jamestown. There wasn't conflict from the start so much in New England, but there was an expectation that that was a possibility. They may not have been particularly aware that natives had been taken by English ships in the past, uh, but they should have been generally aware that they, they wouldn't be necessarily meeting a group of people that were happy to see them. Well, and we see in William Bradford's history of, of Plymouth Plantation that he starts writing in the 1630s that he does keep in his footnotes and often in the body of the text that Tisquantum is one of these men who is kidnapped off Cape Cod. He recounts Tisquantum's narrative as told by Thomas Dermer. So it seems like Bradford is generally aware of this practice going on. And we see there are accounts of Native people in London being brought either as guides for New World exploration or uh, curiosities, all sorts of um, strange and almost perverse uses of, of entertainment. Coming back to the idea of armor, that plate armor that visitors can see in our 1624 mm. um, English village may have been more convenient in the New World as it was falling out of favor in the Old World because the, the weapons of warfare here, the tools of warfare here, were better suited to armor than the evolution of firearms in England. Is that a bit of a extreme hypothesis, or would is armor better defense against bows and arrows? Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, the, the armor that the English were bringing over was basically uh, armor that was at the height of medieval armor technology. Medieval armor was pretty good at stopping medieval weapons. So if all of your weapons are muscle-powered, these steel breastplates will stop arrows. Armories are emptied in Europe, uh, in England. You know, there's a, I believe in Jamestown's archaeology, they find a full plate armor buried in a well. Uh, and again, the stuff works if you're fighting people with bows and arrows and clubs and other hand weapons. Natives also don't wear armor themselves, usually. Uh, and the English down in Jamestown very quickly realized that if they fire hail shot out of their muskets, which is like firing a load of buckshot, uh, that this also works. They don't have to use full, full bore bullets as they would in Europe. So because the, the European um, craft of warfare has evolved really beyond absolute necessity of plate armor, um, is it cheaply gotten for people starting a plantation in the New World? Is there just a lot of it hanging around that people can have easy access to? It does seem to be easily accessible. Um, the stuff is laying around in armories. They're just sending it to Jamestown. It doesn't seem like it's an overly expensive item for our pilgrims to acquire. Mr. Bradford talks about when they go out on their explorations, each man with his sword and musket and corselet. And a corselet is a description of Probably what's abreast and back. So uh, helmets would have also been worn. In the time period, leg armor and shoulder armor is generally being abandoned because it's encumbering and uh, inconvenient. But uh, the English bring hand weapons as well. The English bring swords and daggers. Uh, they also have pikes. Pikes are very useful in Europe. Um, in New England, they seem to be only useful for riot. 
I'm also curious to see what exactly that military exercise looks like. Is it drilling? Is it firing? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. It, it, we don't know precisely when they, the fact that they, that we're told they exercise their arms, uh, because I spent a little time reading these uh, military manuals from the time period, which actually that's part of the sort of military revolution as it's described by modern historians, mm -hmm. that there's a confluence of literature, a change in military technology, uh, and because of the printing press, there are, for the first time, military manuals available for both drilling and marching large groups of men, and also for the individual training of soldiers with their weapons, complete with pictures, uh, which makes it a lot easier to train these people. But for what they're probably doing at Plymouth, I would expect that they'd be doing a mixture, a, a mixture of marching, the ability to march in order and in step, uh, was something they admired from the Romans and uh, a lot of these early military manuals are actually adaptations of Roman authors writing about the Roman army. Uh, so it was important to be able to march in ranks and files and to show your community that the men who were expected to defend the community could do that. And that being the basic element, they would probably also drill with their weapons and... Uh, they fire salutes quite frequently in the time period. They talk about firing salutes for various occasions, Governor Bradford's wedding, for example. And it's my imagination anyway, my idea that it, it makes sense to me that they might end it with some sort of a salute uh, or even shooting at marks, which is basically target practice. How big was this body of men in 1621? In 1621, uh, I can't imagine there would have been more than maybe 20. Uh, there are only about 45 survivors from the Mayflower by that point. Many of them are women and children. Uh, that really leaves a relative, a little over 20 grown men, including Captain Standish. And English law required compulsory military service. So you would have all men between the ages of 16 and 60 would be required to participate in military exercises. So with that body of 20 men, our estimation, include 16, 17, 18-year-old young men as well? Oh, yes. Um, actually, Bradford later, uh, when the town is under some threat in 1623 from Massachusetts, uh, talks about arming boys. Uh, and I'm not sure whether he means 16-year-olds or if he means younger. I was wondering if you could speak for a moment about Miles Standish. You've played Miles Standish for a number of years. I have. Uh, you play Miles Standish as a museum teacher when you go out into classrooms and do speaking bureaus. Uh, he was a professional soldier. Absolutely. Uh, at least I, I'm, I'm firmly convinced. Miles Standish is, is interesting in one way because we really don't know a lot about what his life was like on the other side of the Atlantic other than what people on this side of the Atlantic tell us about him. He writes for himself saying that he was supposed to inherit some land in Lancashire and on the Isle of Man, and this is in his will. Uh, he claims that this was surreptitiously detained from him by his father's younger brother or something to that effect, um, and is encouraging his son Alexander to try to acquire that land. That's the, the, 
sort of the, the best paper trail back to England about Miles Standish. There are no records of his service during the war with Spain. There's, uh, there are people, uh, Nathaniel Morton, William Bradford, a number of our pilgrims state that he had been a soldier for a long time in Europe, and based on the fact that he seems to come from a family of lower gentry, he seems to have expected that he was going to be inheriting land. The likely course for his uh, service in the army would have been to start as a young gentleman of the regiment, and it, it sort of, uh, he would have been the equivalent of a, an apprentice officer, to serve the officers and to learn from them what it was to be an, an ensign, which is a flag bearer, a drummer, and drummers carried messages, so they weren't just drummer boys in the time period. And he eventually would have learned the skills that would have made him able to be a lieutenant. He agrees to come out, lands here in 1620, he's elected captain in 1621. Though he does seem to understand what he's doing, it's very evident from Winslow's account, the Plymouth militia is used to support another colony, or another plantation, at West Augusta in 1623. He shows every evidence of having read one of the books that is in his inventory when he dies, which is Machiavelli's Art of War. And The Art of War by Machiavelli is one of those books that really writes about military philosophy of the time. Very much this idea of the means are justified by the ends. At Wessagusset, he confronts Massachusetts warriors who are besieging an English town that has, in fact, been stealing from the Massachusetts. He's ordered to restore military order and protect English lives and property. There is a strange, perverse application of execution as entertainment and death as entertainment in England. We see public executions, we see public hangings. Um, how much of that aspect of military sort of victory and celebration comes to Plymouth? Hard to say over here. We sometimes forget how much the English are like the old Romans. In England in the 17th century, in London, there are bear pits where they bet on bear fights, dog fights, rat fights, cock fights, cock fights. Uh, what we do know about our, our Plymouth planters is that they're not big on gambling. Mm -hmm. um, they do seem to approve of things that are contests of skill. So there seems to be actually uh, Mr. Winslow uh, seems to get involved in some wagering over shooting. But shooting is a, a sport of skill, and so whether you can hit a target, uh, that would kind of pass muster with uh, Puritan sensibilities. As far as bear baiting was concerned, the Puritans didn't like that because it didn't seem to do any good. They do approve of bull baiting, though, which is a lot like bullfighting now, where they, th they say that getting the blood of the animal up before it's slaughtered uh, increases the strength of its meat or something like that effect. So where there's a... Where there's a practical application, the Puritans will cut, will cut you a little slack. How would this community have entertained themselves? We know they're having a break from their everyday lives. They have three days that they're here. What, um, what do we know the sorts of games and sport that they would have been playing? Let's start with what we actually know from Winslow's letter. We know that there's some kind of entertainment, and among the entertainment is martial exercising. Right. Uh, and feasting. We can't forget feasting. Feasting's very important entertainment. Um, the, uh, 
actual sports that are going on at Plymouth, uh, in some ways I have to be conjectural, although if we skip a little bit ahead in the same year to Christmas 1621, mm -hmm. William Bradford kind of infamously busts up Christmas. Uh, he, is a, he is asked by some new arrivals on the Fortune and some others who, as he says, are not yet so well informed uh, if they might have the day off for Christmas, December the 25th, 1621. Uh, Mr. Bradford makes it clear to them that he does not agree with this practice, but if they will make it a matter of religious devotion, it's not within his conscience to, to approve such things or disapprove. Um, but he does kind of make a point that we of the Church of New Plymouth will be going out for work. And uh, Puritans and Separatists in the time period uh, are of the belief that December 25th can't possibly be the day that Christ was actually born on, and that that is a popish or even pagan invention. When they come back for their noon meets, Mr. Bradford finds his neighbors are playing at stool ball and pitching a bar. And these are the two sports we can say absolutely uh, were happening here. Pitching a bar is kind of uh, like sort of like the Olympic hammer throw game where you have a bar, it could be an iron bar, it could be a bar of wood, and you're trying to hurl that as far as possible. They're probably wagering on it, though we don't know. But the and remember these guys at the at the Christmas celebration are not the Puritans. Stool ball seems to be ancestral to either volleyball or maybe cricket and baseball, where a ball is being, they call it posted, where you toss the ball up lightly and hit it with your open palm over the other side. They try to catch it and then toss up and post it back if they catch it. And kind of like on volley, in volleyball, uh, modern-day volleyball, if the ball falls on the, on the defending side, uh, then a point is scored. Uh, the stool comes in because it acts as a divider between the two sides, mm -hmm. and it's a target. So if uh, the other team has successfully scored a point, you can pick up the ball from wherever it ended up and throw it at the stool. And if you hit the stool, then the person that was posting, as they call it, is out. Now I'm curious. We have we have evidence they play stool ball, but. What source material do we use for how the games are played? Bradford is not writing out all of those details. So what kind of sources inform how we teach our visitors to play stool ball and, and how we exhibit games of stool ball? Uh, we have a number of secondary sources that we've been using right now. What I'd actually really like to get a hold of uh, as an acquisition for ourselves is the King's Book of Sports, which was published in the time period. Uh, actually, I that I, I don't want to neglect some other sports that might have been approved of by the Puritans. Uh, we do know that they're fishing in the fresh water, and in the time period, freshwater fishing is usually called angling, and it's done more for entertainment than it's done for uh, putting something on the table. The English were pretty avid anglers in the time period, and based on their descriptions of the animals in the area. Uh, foot races is another sport that they seem to like to engage in. Uh, although it, it reminds me now that a number of these things that they approve of are all things that might be said to increase the strength and coordination of the body or the mind. 
Uh, chess, for example, is approved of by the Puritans, as are games like Nine Men Morris, any game of strategy. What about bowling games like Nine Pins or Kingpin? Uh, those would have also been played in the time period. Uh, there were variations that went from county to county, which is one of the reasons that it's kind of difficult to actually get the rules of these games. Uh, but, uh, and, and one source we have, which is fascinating, is a Dutch source. Uh, it's a Bruegel painting that shows children at, they, they have to be at maybe, there might be almost a hundred different things going on in this enormous painting. Um, what's wonderful is you get to see images of people at the games. What's frustrating is nobody writes them down, and they may even, just as modern children, kind of be making up and adapting the rules. I know all the playground games I learned when I was a kid, I didn't learn from any rule books. The other children taught me. Mm -hmm. uh, hobby horses were known in the time period, so pantomime games are also something that people are playing. There does seem to be less division than we might expect between adult games and children games. Uh, so playing stool ball would be something that you would likely find adults and children all playing together. But we see a lot of other children's games as well, things like cup and ball, hoop and stick, um, any kind of ball games. We see these in lots of Dutch paintings. We also see a lot of golf in Dutch paintings, yeah. which we usually think of as a Scottish game, but we see that the Dutch are, are playing golf as well. And what I love about what we're providing for our listeners here is an indication that these are people who do who do play. They have to work a lot because that's what life demands of them here in New England, also back in England. You have to grow your crops, you have to cook your food, you have to make physic, you have to work at your work, whatever it might be, but that there is balance in their lives in the play as well as in the the work that they have to do for their for their subsistence and for celebrations like the first Thanksgiving or the 1621 Harvest Feast, it was an opportunity to to tip the balance a little bit more mm -hmm. toward sport and away from uh, away from work temporarily, just as our Thanksgiving celebrations are today. You reminded me of something. Um, actually, it, it's a perspective I've had from having worked here for 20 day, or 20 years and having been on sometimes slow days um, and doing, you sort of here, you're in 17th century outfit, you're doing 17th century tasks and it occurred to me one day, if the visitors didn't come by, it would be so bloody boring. Uh, and that, it, it, it gave me some insight into the need for entertainment. These sorts of things uh, could even be simple. I'm often asked, what would people have done on the ship? And the ship is a place where there's a lot less ability to sort of play games and sports. You can't even stand up straight, let alone throw a ball. And the English were actually fond of two forms of word games. They were fond of uh, riddles and conundrums. Mm. And riddles, again, and conundrums being kind of similar, sort of word problems uh, that are solved verbally. To strengthen the mind rather than strengthen the body as you would in foot racing. Um, and again, that would, that would fit with Puritan approval. Uh, we know also that there's some things that go on here in the 1630s that are not approved because they end up in the court. Mr. Hopkins uh, seems to like to celebrate Christmas. And uh, our pilgrim, Mr. Hopkins, even gets in trouble at one point 
for allowing people to play, I think it's shuttleboard or shuffleboard, which is a, it's probably like quartz where uh, you're wagering on, on the result of whatever's happening in the game. Uh, and he does have to answer for that in court. Well, very quickly, before we run out of time, I want to come back to Miles Standish a little bit. Um, you have demonstrated for our listeners your extensive knowledge of military history, military practices of the 17th century, Standish's biography, his experience. Um, what is the biggest Standish or colonial military myth you would like to see debunked? Oh, just one? <laughs> for I now. I think the one that I would like to see, if any gotten rid of is that he was necessarily short. Uh, they do call him a shrimp uh, he's in some source Captain materials. Shrimp, but I often try to explain to people that the, the subtle meanings of Elizabethan English are frequently lost in modern English. And so shrimp seems to be something more to describe somebody who's skinny, mm. uh, which would be Rather natural if you'd spent a lot of time as a soldier. Soldiers tend to be kind of lean and wiry. Uh, fortunately for historians, our friends, the phrenologists, dug him up early in the 20th century, and they measured uh, a man who was quite old when he died uh, as being, I believe, five foot ten, which, which is would, above average for the for men for yeah, the period. Yeah, put him in the high average category mm -hmm. in that time period, uh, and. Uh, the, the English do describe the natives as being very large. So it's entirely possible that uh, Captain Standish was shorter than Wittawamit or Pecksuit. Uh, there's a description where he is described as being a little man by this native warrior that he will later kill. And there's a later statement by a native named Habamok. Uh, Yesterday, Pecksuit called you a little man. Today I see you were big enough to kill him. But I sometimes wonder if that's more metaphorical. Uh, Native people are described by Master Winslow as having a group of uh, men who are military leaders called Panises who are believed to be invulnerable to ordinary men. And it may have simply been Pecksuit asserting to Standish that, you know, you're just an ordinary guy and you can't hurt me. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for joining us for our podcast today. Uh, you can learn more about the first Thanksgiving or plan your own harvest celebration at Plymouth Plantation by visiting our website, www.plimoth.org. For more episodes and information about the podcast, you can follow us on our social media channels. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and you can download all of the previous episodes on iTunes. Thanks for listening.